welcome to the Keener Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenon Yoga podcast is David Kyle. David was introduced into yoga in 1989 by his Tai Chi teacher. From 1999 to 2003, David was an instructor of kinesiology at Miami's Educating Hand School of Massage, where he developed his fun and informal style of teaching. As he taught the students there with no prior understanding of anatomy, David was confronted with the problem of making such a complex system accessible. In 1999, he was introduced to Ashtanga Yoga, and then in 2001, he combined the two, presenting with John Scott the anatomy workshops in Penzance. Two weeks practicing with John was transformative and he realised he'd found his teacher. That began a relationship with both of them, collaborative, and it continues today. John advised David to go to Mysore in India the following year, which he did, and arriving in 2002, he studied with Patabi Joyce in the Old Shala. David was authorised in 2004 and returned yearly for extended visits with his wife, Gretchen Suarez. They're both authorised to teach. Welcome to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. David Kyle. So it's great to have you here today. Can you just give us a little um, little background about how you started Ashtanga, how you came into it, um, what your interest was, et cetera, et cetera? Um, okay, I'll, I'll give you the brief version. Okay, that'd be great. Yo- yoga for me, actually, I mean, if I go all the way back, preschool had a teacher who used to do yoga with kids. So we're talking... 1977, 78. Now, I don't really consider that the beginning of yoga for me, but uh, it's, there's a little, t- there's a picture somewhere of me on a little carpet, you know, doing butterfly or something. Yeah. Um, and then when I was in high school, I was, um, I was working in a, I was cooking in a restaurant. Yeah. And uh, one of the patrons was a Thai, was a, he was a chiropractor and a Tai Chi teacher. And he actually, I started, I was doing Tai Chi classes with him and then we started practicing yoga together. So there was that. Right. And I went off to, to, to uni, if you will. And um, I, I did a little bit of practice on and off kind of stuff. And then I started to get more serious. And then um, after uni, I, at some point I was living on Miami Beach and that's where I, I actually... I actually bartered um, a yoga private because I had kind of fallen out. I was doing more general hatha yoga, like Shivananda style kind of yoga. What, what did you study at uni? Um, Dip a bit more. Business up. management. Okay, right. So nothing, <laughs> nothing yoga related. <laughs> no. no. Well, actually, well, you know, in the nowadays, it might be, it might be quite relevant. <laughs> it, oh, it is totally relevant, and that uh, that's what it was. It was, you know, I considered psychology and. <laughs> Um, things that were a little bit more in line with that, but um, I thought I don't really know, so let me get a general base of uh, because not to get too far sidetracked, but basically, you know, I think my thinking at the time was, well, whatever I do, it always involves business, 
in in the sense of you have to run your life, you have to run your, you know. Mm. And I knew I was never somebody who was really going to kind of go corporate. That I knew for sure. So anyway, so um, I was I had left yeah. uni and I went to massage school, um, and I was teaching kinesiology in massage school. And after going through the program and all of that stuff. And that's where I met somebody who was an Ashtanga practitioner. And I had kind of fallen off a little bit of doing yoga practice. And we ended up bartering. She had shoulder uh, issues. Um, and I wanted a yoga private. So we did a trade. And I had never done Ashtanga and what's before. The, I'm sorry? What's kinesiology? For, because you taught kinesiology, I think, for the first, you know, that was your kind of first um, fray into body work, right? And what, what is that for people that don't know? Well, and are you still into that? I think it's muscle testing, isn't it? Something it, like that. Yeah, kinesiology has, it can have a couple of meanings. Um, from, mm -hmm. from the um, study point of view or, or scientific point of view, kinesiology is the study of muscles, like their, their attachments, their actions, right? But there is also okay. this, mm -hmm. this um, field of body work called applied kinesiology, which is muscle testing. You know, if this muscle's turned off, you know, you test it a test week, you do X, Y, and Z, and that means X, Y, and Z about this person. And but there's and that goes on, you know, ad infinitum. Yeah. Um, so when I say kinesiology, I mean the study of neuromuscular system or the muscles where they attach, what they do, their function, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm going to just clarify that because I remember I think I had a kinesiology test where someone, they put things in your hand, like a yep. can of Coke, and, and if it was heavy, you were maybe <laughs> allergic to it or something, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of, this is, I yeah. was never really fully buy, buy into that. But yeah. yeah. That, that is the applied kinesiology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyhow, is, so you bartered the Ashtanga. Um, yes, I bartered sorry, I for sorry. the Ashtanga. <laughs> exactly. And um, it was so dynamic and different because, I, I, again, I had been doing Shivananda. So it was basically, you know, rest between postures, not do a vinyasa, um, belly breathing, don't hold it in, you know, and all, yeah. all of this very, like, complete opposite. But um, obviously it left me, it, it made quite the impression on me. So, um, that is where it started. That was um, maybe towards the end of 98. Right. 98, yeah. Something like mm -hmm. that. 99, maybe. Did you, you practice immediately? I mean, did you develop a daily practice from there or how did it go? Just Pretty quickly. Always... Right. Pretty, On your pretty own? Quickly, I did, yeah. Um, mm. Well, I started, I was practicing with a person who I bartered with. And then actually Ryan Spielman was teaching Ashtanga in Miami at the time. Yes. Um, right. He and now his well uh, partner at the time. What's yeah. that? Now well known in London. You know, he's been. Well, well known in London. Yeah. 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 Um, right. And that was my first experience of a Mysore class as well. Or Mysore style class. So, yeah. And then it was, it just became full on very quickly. And then. Uh, within a, a, so my first trip to the UK, for instance, to see John was at the end of 2001. And then you, my right. so you went to see John before. I mean, because I met you when you were teaching on John's first teacher training, the, um, the anatomy part, right? So I kind of always yeah. wondered how you'd arrived to that point. So you went to see John before you started working with him? Yes. So what happened was on that yeah. trip... Um, a friend from the UK had booked me four anatomy workshops around, around the UK. Um, one was in Penzance. 
um, with a different teacher, not with John, but I knew I could practice with John and I had bought John's book. So I knew of John because it had just come out in the U S mm. um, and then there was one in Scotland and one mm. in London and uh, there was one in Oxford. Right. So mm. what happened was I, um, I practiced with John for a week. I booked two weeks with John. I practiced with him for a week. And then he asked me if I could do like a two hour evening on the second week and just present some anatomy. And I did that and I didn't know it. I think there were two doctors, maybe an osteo and another doctor who he was very friendly with. And they were quite curious, it was, you know, 10 or 12 people. It wasn't, you know, anything. You didn't know that. Deal. I was going to ask you, I mean, the first place, how did you learn the anatomy? Like where, where, where was that training in your, in your kind of career? Right. Well, the anatomy that I learned was one was the, some self-study previous with the Tai Chi and along those lines and the yoga prior to Ashtanga. Yeah. Just a little bit. And then when I went to massage school myself, I was one of those students who just like gobbled it all up and then did extra workshops on top of. And I was, I was at, in, quite simply, I was certified in techniques of body work before I had even finished school. Right. It, you know, specializations. And yeah. one of those specializations was neuromuscular therapy, which is highly involved in knowing exactly where every muscle is, what its function is, and memorizing all that information, which is why I then ended up going back and teaching that subject at the massage school for four years. I, yeah, I suppose we got it back to front a bit, but well, what, I mean, what, <laughs> what, what interest is you in the first place so much on, on the, I mean, to be honest, it was never my great interest in um, Ashtanga anatomy, but you know, I mean, like you, you make, you were so solid in your teaching of it. Um, and you definitely have that passion. I remember what, what, why, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the motivation, the motivation at the time for learning the anatomy was really to help people get out of pain. And did you have pain or is that, was that something? No, you, no. So I, I didn't just, have pain. Just a very sympathetic kind of guy. <laughs> That's what my wife says all the time. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I wish mine. <laughs> I I think. Yeah. I mean, there was a motivation to help others. There was a curiosity around the body after having done a lot of tai chi and yoga as well at that point. Um, so and, and part of my aim at the time, I thought I wanted to be an acupuncture physician. Right. And I, I used massage school as a stepping stone in that direction. Mm. But then I got lost in the world of body work. Mm. And I met a couple of key people along the way who, you know, were making, you know, significant changes in people's lives through getting them out of chronic pain. Mm. And it was just, it was extremely inspiring. And so that kind of, you know, drove yeah. that in. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's how, that's why I ended up learning the anatomy was so that I could understand people's bodies and help them get out of pain. Mm. Um, you know, the anatomy and yoga part, like I, I never really, I didn't, I never really thought of it in a separate way. Uh, obviously I'm using my body to do these practices and you know, I mean, essentially what it, what the 
you know, what the anatomy has provided is a more objective perspective on what's going on. Right. So mm -hmm. there's, there's two parts in my mind. There's, there's the development of the objective part, which is really critical for teaching in my mind. Right. Cause then it's not because I have my own experience of what my body does and how it feels doing postures. So for myself, I have both of those. I go yeah. back and forth between yeah. what it feels like and then thinking about it functionally. And from the teaching point of view, I will never really know what it feels like in somebody's body. Although I like to believe I have developed what I call a kinesthetic empathy, right? how somebody does feel in their body. But then it's always checked against that objective understanding of functionality of anatomy that is universal. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. I think when you came and when you came to study with John, I think you taught him a lot of the anatomy, right? I don't think he, he you know, at that time, you know, at that time, it wasn't really, I mean, that, well, there wasn't really any yoga teacher training around, right? I mean, no. that was the first one of its kind. I remember there was a British wheel um, of yoga, which is the English one, right? And yes, it was yes. a four-year Hatha yoga course. And I just thought that four years, I probably won't be doing it in four. I don't know. I didn't have that, you know, <laughs> I, was a, I was just 20. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there wasn't anything. So, I mean, I, you know, no one, no yoga teacher knew anatomy, right? And I think, I mean, how did you, did you notice that that changed John's feeling of it and, and to, at all? Well, was what, genius. To, 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 yeah, to bring us back around to where we had left off on <clears throat> that John journey. Yeah. Yes. When I taught that two hour workshop for John, what I didn't know at the time, but what happened was the two, the two doctors yeah. went up to John and basically were like, that was one of the best simple presentations of anatomy I've, I've ever seen. And, um, off the back of that, I don't think John had decided it, but I think Lucy had decided that she wanted me to come onto their next um, technique of teaching week and present anatomy, which was three months away at that point. So that's what started that relationship. And then coming back to what you were, where you were going with that, which is what happened with John is John understood the anatomy without any of the technical information of yeah. how the anatomy works, but he understood movement and he understood, you know, the body is basically joints are basically fulcrums, you know, or, or, um, you can call you can, or levers really is a better way to, to describe it. And John's mind works in that way. And he understands relationship between things. So and I think that's where we really connected because my approach to anatomy was this, interconnected kind of way of seeing it. But I, at that point, I really only had a few years of practice experience where John had years of pra practice experience and not the anatomy experience. And, you know, a lot of credit to John for his um, openness. I mean, he learned anatomy. I mean, he really learned anatomy. Right. And, um, and I really learned the practice from him. Mm. And, and it was, um, there was a lot of, um, mutual respect and conversation and talking things through and understanding, um, the physical aspect of the practice in that sense. What is it about John that, I mean, just to kind of slightly sidetrack, that attracted you particularly as a teacher? Cause I remember you were very committed to, to John in particular as a, as a teacher, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I think what happened was. I had those two weeks of practice with him and 
he wasn't scared to tell me what he thought. And he actually gave me information. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, a lot of people like, you know, the quote, do your practice and all is coming, you know, for instance. Mm. And it's not that I, I don't recall people having said that to me over and over again or something. But a lot of times that, that kind of quote can become an excuse for, I don't really need to say anything to you. I don't need to teach you anything. The practice is going to take care of everything. Yeah. Which may be true in some cases. It would be nice to believe that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, I mean, for John, maybe, but I mean, you know, because what I was going to say is that John, I always kind of think there's many types of genius and, you know, like <laughs> I heard it years ago that David Beckham was a genius, you know, physically, right? Like the way he could corner a ball. And I always thought John was a genius. I mean, John's a smart guy anyways, but you know, a genius in movement, right? Like he just had yeah. that knowledge, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And the way that he could, kind of uh, describe it in a poetic manner and bring it out, you know? Exactly. And so when I would, and, 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 you know, the other thing is not everybody's mind is ready to just accept that do your practice and all is coming kind of way of thinking, you know, and, and the, the teacher always has to meet the student where they are. There, there's no doubt about it to me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so John recognized what my strengths and my weaknesses were. He recognized who I was as a person, whether how far into my intellect or mind he got, I don't know, but enough of an understanding of me as a person to talk to me in a way that it would impact me more. Mm. And so when I would ask a why question, he would give me an answer in a way that I understood. Mm. And so to me, that's, there's nothing more valuable. I mean, I had mentors prior to that in body work. And as I had mentioned, you know, along the way, and you know, that's one of the things it's not, it's not just that they're knowledgeable, but that they can present that knowledge to you in a way that it has an impact that yeah. it has value. Yeah. Yeah. And so John was my teacher. That was it. I mean, it was clear. It was obvious. There's no doubt about it. It's like, oh, you're going to answer my questions in a way that I understand. And you want me to come back and teach anatomy for you? Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? <laughs> it was a great deal. <laughs> yeah. But what, then, then he recommended you go to Mysore at the time, you know, Batabi Joyce was still alive. Um, and how did that sync with you? Because that's the opposite kind of teaching. That is literally the, you know, just, just you practice. Uh, you know, well, you do, and you do kind of mentality, right? And if you're not yeah, doing, yeah, it, absolutely. You know, well, you get a strong hand in in the doing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what happened was on that first trip when when they asked me to come back and teach. So that was uh, that was I think I was there in December, if I'm not mistaken, of 2001, and I came back in March of 2002. And John said, "Come back, do the anatomy, and then go to Mysore." From, from the UK. You're halfway there anyway. Book that. So that's what I did. And, you know, John gave me instructions for Mysore. They, they, weren't, they weren't super, they weren't ridiculous. They were just wow. like, just watch Patabi Joyce. Just watch him teach. And so I would sit on the steps because it, it was the last year of the old Shala. Mm. And then they were on their, they were actually going on tour. So it was the tailing at, at last two months of the old Shala. So the numbers weren't going up. The numbers were going down. Lucky. So there were less and less people. Wow. 
um, which was, it was just sweet. It, I, you know, not to make it too special, but it was, um, yeah, that's something, you know, I really regretted yeah. not going there at that time. I, I saw Katabi Joyce and practiced in Mysore with him with a new place, but I would have yeah. loved to record it in the old place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it was nice. It was mm-hmm. nice to be able to do that. Um, and the other thing that was going on is, uh, Sharat was doing his own classes. That was the first year Sharat was doing his own classes. So he wasn't even in the shallow by the time I would get in at the hour, except for one day a week, which was his student's day off, which was not Saturday. It was a different day, you know, because that's not a rule. Oh my God. (laughs) So it was a lot of Patabi Joyce and, um, and I would just sit on the steps before and after my actual time. And I just watch him teach, watch him teach and kind of ask the question, why was he doing that with that person, but that with that person. And there were lots of those moments. Right. Variation you saw of good. I mean, cause obviously one thing I'm kind of, yeah, we say I'm slightly vested in is showing that there was more variation than maybe, you know, oh. we're led to believe now. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, anybody who goes to Mysore and opens their eyes will see that people get taught differently. People get given poses at different times. Yeah. Yeah. That's my observation. I mean, I watch people with knee injuries told not to, to skip postures because of their knee injury. I saw that with my own eyes. I, I, I think the presentation of the rigidness is kind of there on purpose but it's not the practical application that's applied by Sherrod or Patabi Joyce. When, yeah. Not what I saw, mm-hmm. you know, it was certainly within parameters. It wasn't like ridiculous stuff, but it, there was certainly variation and um, modifications given some modifications given. I mean, and I think that was the thing is, you know, John sent me off to see a way of teaching rather than, the way of teaching mm-hmm. or and Patabi Joyce just, you know, exemplified that kind of ability to treat different people differently. Right. Yeah. And that's what I got from it. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, I mean, did, how did that, did that affect your kind of feeling of the practice at all? Having kind of approached it from a very rational way, <laughs> you know, cause it, I mean, there is a thing yeah. around my soul, which is not, exactly rational right like you know it's not so much you know kind of well you know explained along those kind of lines it's something an, an, an other quality right i mean did it yes yeah yeah you get you get swept away in the for lack of a better word the energy of mysore and the level of practice that goes on there um it's kind of like just to bring up another you know popular quote which is 99 percent practice and one percent theory hmm um, I've been in Patabi Joyce's office and, you know, it was loaded with philosophy books. Yeah. It, the, the 1% theory, you know, to me, it's a, it actually reflects back into the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, which talks about having one's own experience of the practice. And to me, that quote is really more like, you know, don't, you know, look for your own answers rather than only being living in the theoretical or what if, or what if, not to mention the, you know, the mind doing its own turning aspect of questioning everything and doing everything. And especially doing that while practicing, that's not the time to do it necessarily. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I suppose let's get into the nitty gritty of it. I mean, you're oh. you know, well known as an anatomy guy. Um, and how does, I mean, you know, basically, how does it benefit to know anatomy in practice? And, you know, or, or like, you know, I ask this question now, can it kind of, can it confuse or get in the way of this flowing kind of quality of experientialness? That, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been asked this question multiple times, well, you yeah, know, yeah. Stu, for instance, uh, Stu Gerling, you I know, know. Yes. I, remember, I remember he asked me, he's like, so you, so when, so when you're doing whatever posture, I don't know, are you thinking about my, n- no, I'm not thinking about muscles. I'm not thinking about joints. I'm not naming things. Right. I'm not doing any of that stuff while I'm practicing. I don't, and this is, I think this is true for most people as well. I mean, although I'm sure there are people who, who go through that, but typically you would, you would only think about stuff like that if A, something hurt, or B, you couldn't do it and you believe it to be an anatomical limitation of right. some form or fashion, and then you're trying to figure that out. Mm. So that's where the interaction with anatomy happens. And, it, and that's true for me as well. Um, but my normal day-to-day practice, I don't go through it thinking about anatomy. Not at all, not one bit. You must think that anatomy makes you a better practitioner. I mean, <laughs> no, 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 I don't think there's, I don't think it's necessary to know anatomy right. to be right. a good right. practitioner or... Right. Uh, not even close. I, and, and we kind of touched on this already, but yeah. as a teacher, yeah. I find it extremely valuable, extremely relevant and extremely useful uh, all the time. Right. All the time. Because I see bodies moving or not moving in particular ways. I see patterns that should, I, I use that word loosely, should or should not be there relative to that person, you know, and quite often, you're dealing with people who are having, I, I tend to attract people who are having some problem, having yeah. an issue with their body. Yeah, I can imagine that might be the case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is fine. I, I, yeah, I, I, I enjoy that. Your niche. Um, I mean, look, as a slight aside, I suppose, do you, you're still practicing Ashtanga Yoga or? Is that your practice? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not to the same degree necessarily or intensity level or however you want to describe that. But, um, the, the, the basic principles of, um, breath, banda, dristi, and loosely following sequence, you know, or modifying it as needed, um, based on what I'm feeling in my body is there. Yeah. How's that? Um, ambiguous it's like um i think i asked another question yeah on um to someone else recently and um the person mentioned um well i'm you know i'm practicing ashtanga yoga as long as i'm following tristana um which is fair enough um but that's very then you know really really that's just yoga isn't it i suppose my particular question is and i'm you know it's a slightly leading question how do you see the sequence anatomically is there a rhyme or reason i mean i think and there is this myth that it's some kind of perfect combination lock that this moves to that and that moves to that and you know in the perfect sequencing where would you see that it's for it, where are its strengths and weaknesses i mean i know that's a pretty big 
uh, ask, but um, can you name yeah. a few examples? I, I think it's a really good question, actually. Thank you. Um, and and uh, even though it's obvious, I'm just going to say, you know, I have my own opinion about all of this, but that doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. Um, I think there are certain assumptions that the practice sort of, the Ashtanga practice sort of has. One is, I think this is where a lot of people get in trouble in, in, the, in, in how they approach it. There's, you, you kind of have to look back historically for a moment and go, okay, somebody's coming to practice. They don't have really particularly any health issues or stuff, which is why you would get that sequence. Because prior to the Westerners showing up, Patabi Joyce gave sequences and pranayamas and stuff for people to do based on their individual needs. Mm. So the sequences that we now describe as Ashtanga Yoga are um, for the young, fit people, for, for healthy people, just generally speaking. Doesn't mean that other people can't do it. It just means that it's kind of established in, and it's also established in you're going to practice basically every day. Like, so one of the biggest pitfalls is somebody gets stuck in primary series for 10 years. That, I, that's, not an in, that's not how it's a, quote unquote supposed to be in terms of how the sequence was generated and come up with it was assumed you were probably on the younger side, probably on the fitter yeah. side, mm. and probably going to practice every day. And therefore, you would quickly move on. You know, maybe you'd be there maybe a year or something. I don't think it was even that long, you know, early on. But whether it was a year or so, okay, fine. You open the backside of your body first, and then you quickly move into second series. And now you have backbending and, you know, deeper forward bending and arm balances. And then you start, you, you create a more balance. I think too many people end up imbalancing themselves based on some rule that you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to do A, B, and C. But that's not looking at the individual anymore. Yeah. I think it was a generalization, wasn't it? You know, come up with, yeah. due to logistics at a certain point in time, when there was a certain, you know, a kind of huge number of people coming. Um, and yeah, and it wasn't really taken into account that there, Latterly was a real agent uh, variation in ages. Whereas, you know, when, when people like David Swenson came there, they got the yoga, uh, David Williams, they got the yoga curriculum, right? Like, which was, I think it was like yep. four months and you went through all the series or more or less, you know, a lot, yeah. a lot of, you know, and, yeah. and then, you know, latterly, you know, you get stuck in the, with these teachers and a lot of people's complaints I know was, oh, I've been stuck on Mary Charleston D for like 20 years because I can't bind. And you're just like, well, how, how sad. Um, and, you know, an, an unfunctional, right? Um, Absolutely. So what, what's your perspective on, you know, amending the, the sequences then? Knowing that well, we are an older contingency these days because young people yeah. practice vinyasa flow. <laughs> well, not necessarily, but, you know, it's generally older than maybe it was, you know, when there was a choice of a Yenga or Ashtanga. Um, and, you know, and, uh, and people are injured, you know, or sit, or, you know, don't sit cross-legged on the floor. Yeah, I mean, one, I, I, I don't think Ashtanga is that the sequence, one, is for everyone, and it's okay. <laughs> That's totally fine. Um, it's an ideal. 
I think that's the way to hold it a little bit more loosely rather than some panacea for fixing everybody's problems. Mm. You know, there's certainly a value in the discipline of trying to maintain the sequence. Right. But you know, this kind of this kind of brings me, you know, back to we talked about Tristana, or you mentioned Tristana for a moment. Mm. The practice is not the sequences. The practice is doing the sequences while maintaining breath, banda, dristi. That's the practice. That's the part that gets lost. Everybody's like, oh, you know, the sequence, the sequence, the sequence, the sequence. Yeah. No, it's actually, that's the challenge for you. Do those sequences while doing the fundamental parts that actually change you and your mind, which is breath, banda, and dristi. That is the, that's the essence of yoga practice. Yeah. Focus, concentration, mental stability. But then not that, whether or not you can put your foot behind your head. To that end, could we then modify the sequence as we want, as long as we're practicing breath and bond? Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean like, just to play devil's advocate with you there. Yeah, 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 good. Well, is um, there any particular progressive well, combination? So here's the thing is, mm. um, if you're unfamiliar with the practice, you need the confines of a sequence to maintain discipline. So what, should a beginner just make up a practice? Absolutely not. Should a first year practitioner be making up a, no. Should I make up a practice for, no. It's a, it's a very good system. It's when the person is well-developed in breath bondage while performing posture and then needs modifications based on their constitution, their body or aches and pains or injuries or histories or whatever it is that we then have to go, okay, this person has, has the discipline to maintain steadiness of breath bondage and practice in general. And now let's work on them as an individual. Mm, mm. That's how I see it. Right. And what, what, when you say it's a good system, anatomically speaking as a you know as an expert um what why well you are and well, why um why do you think that what what is it that i mean there's a lot of what all confuses me is that anatomically speaking there's a hell of a lot of work on lotuses which doesn't seem like a functional movement necessarily okay so if we tackle lotus for a moment you have to look at it in its historical context everybody right especially at the time of the cultivation of this particular asana sequence in practice could sit on the floor and cross their legs. So, and I would, I would go a step further, Adam, I'd say it's not really about Lotus. It's about opening the hips. So when I look at it anatomically primary series, it's not about forward bending. It's not about forward bending. It's about opening the hips in certain directions in certain directions first. So what is assumed if we follow the Lotus part, what is assumed that you have external rotation in the hip joint, that you have flexion in the hip joint, right? What everybody does is they think it's about forward bending. They get kind of, you know, it's like our mind likes to simplify things and just go, Oh, I understand this. Mm -hmm. and then you don't have to think about it, which is good. But if we're about forward bending, then we would just do Paschimottanasana over and over again. Right. And people forget that you change the shape on one side or the other. It's that side that has changed shape 
that is the focus or primary focus of that posture, not the forward bend. So what's the particular benefit of opening the hips? Opening the hips then leads into the spine because the spine isn't going to be stable and happy unless the hips underneath it. And, and when we say open, that's also an oversimplification. It's a, it's a combination of um, both strength and flexibility, a balance, a balance, always. That's what it always comes back to. It's about balance in the body. It's not that something's weak or something's strong. It's that it, it, the strength and, and the flexibility are in balance all around a particular joint. So when you create that around the hips, the spine has more mobility and is more adaptable. And then you get into second series and you start working on the spine. Just like all the bindings in primary also help with the shoulders. And it's almost like you're surrounding the spine. Super hips opening and changing and getting in balance. Shoulders opening, changing, getting stronger. Right. From right. chaturanga, opening from bindings. And then you end up in second and take that further. Right. That's how I, that's, that's my sense of it. Okay. Hmm. Right. Is that breaking um, news? Uh, well, no, it's, you know, it's, it, that's good. That's good. And um, what about the, um, the idea that you, you be uh, the, the hips, there's something around the energy of the hips that particularly for the, you know, this, like this Kundalini, I mean, we've discussed this before with other teachers that, uh, you know, there's a particular significance to getting the Lotus to be able to sit for long periods in the Lotus what do you think about that? Or are you more anatomically? No. Um, minded? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with that. I, what is the purpose of practice? I, I think the idea of coming back to Lotus is important, but you have to look at it from the point of view of what is the purpose of practice? And the purpose of practice is Samadhi. That's what the Hatha Yoga Pradipika aims towards. That's what Patanjali goes towards. This is the purpose. It's, this is where everybody gets lost in, again, why we were talking about Tristana or Brethbranda Dristi while doing asana, is to cultivate this. Whether or not you need lotus to enter samadhi, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think so. You would? I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so, right, okay. No, I don't think so. Right. I don't think that's a requirement. Is it helpful? It's helpful to have the hips open so that you can sit in meditation. Whether or not you have to, I, I, there's plenty of... You think sitting, there's sitting, is, I mean, can you not sit in a chair in meditation? You can sit in a chair for meditation. There's, mm. There are definitely practitioners of meditation who reach states of samadhi who have never sat in lotus. Absolutely, yeah. There you go. Remember, you know, um, Atta Yoga is a response to Patanjali. In other words, Patanjali's instructions are basically, oh, just sit and meditate. You know, oh, you can't meditate? Oh, do some Kriyas. Oh, and then sit and meditate. Basically. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm really in a nutshell there. And the Atta Yogis, which comes out of Tantra, is like, man, there's not a lot of people who can do that. You know, this is me putting it in my language. Yeah. Not a lot of people but can do they that. They weren't speaking like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they said it quite that way. Um, and what they did was they took advantage, right, of the physical yeah. body to manipulate energy. 
For what purpose? To enter samadhi. So, so you open the body, mind. it helps yeah. posture, yeah. helps the mind. You know, all of those things go together, but it doesn't mean that everybody has to follow the same path exactly there. Right. So your kind of feeling of anatomy is not only a structure or a kind of safety, whereas anatomy is often taken simply, well, you ought to be safe and well, you ought to be aligned for God knows what reason, you know, but your feeling of anatomy goes deeper than that. It's a, a question of creating a balance and a kind of energetic balance. Is that putting words in your mouth? Um, you, you're putting words in my mouth, but I'll agree with them. Okay. It's, you know, there's, there's some correlation between posture and energetic flow. There's correlation perhaps between tension, excess tension and restriction of flow of movement of energy. You know, it's like Patabi Joyce used to say, Oh, breath stopping. Uh, uh, yeah. Breath stopping, blood stopping. Now, literally would your blood flow s- stop because you hold your breath? Of course not. Mm. But to me, those are the things that I interpret as the flow of something, let's call it energy gets stuck unless you're purposely doing that, you know, on a kumbhaka, let's say, Mm -hmm. but in practice, the breath keeps moving. You maintain flow, you maintain breath and movement continually happening. And that does create a certain energy to it or quality. That's another word that I sometimes substitute in for energy is quality. Because a lot of people, you know, we say energy and then people don't know what they're supposed to feel. Like, should I feel things moving within my body? Maybe some people do. Should I, you know, what? It, it, then you start looking for something. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're looking for something takes you away from what is. And so just to bring this back to anatomy, you're, you, in my mind, we're opening the body in a way to be more sensitive to the experience of being in it. And that has a quality or energy to it. That's the, the ultimate cultivation is more and more present with the experience of what's happening in your body. If you're doing posture right now, Mm. you know, when a classic question students ask me is, Oh, where should I feel this? And I always reply, where do you feel this? Because it doesn't even matter what my answer is. Even if I come up with one and I go, well, generally, and, and I'll usually, and if yeah, that yeah. doesn't go anywhere, it's like, well, generally people feel it on the right side in the back of the hip or whatever. Mm-hmm. But where do you feel it? Oh, right. I feel a pinching in the front of my hip. Oh, good. You're different. Great. That's where you feel it. Is that right or wrong? Well, I didn't. Okay. Well, you know, just to, just to, kind of re, reframe that. I mean, if I, I like that, I mean, I'm you know, very much all about a non-dogmatic approach, but if I say to someone, where do they feel it? And they say, well, and they're in Paschimottanasana and, and they say, well, I forward fold basically. And they say, well, I feel it in my lower back and my hamstrings. I'm not just about to go, well, that's great. Just keep pushing into that, you know, <laughs> keep pushing there and get more sensation, you know? Yeah, it's not necessarily... 
there must be some kind of sense of, well, okay, well, this is how I would suggest the anatomy is working, right? Like, you know, general, general principles, no? Yeah, I mean, at, at, just to use your example, I mean, mm. that is typically where people will feel uh, Paschimottanasana is mm. hamstrings and or lower back. So then what do you do? There's nothing to do. Okay. That's the process. You feel sensation in the places where you're stretching tissue. Uh-huh. That's it. What, uh, what else is there to do? Are you now breathing? Are you relaxing into that? Are you pushing too hard into that? Are you, are you not leaning into it enough? Like if somebody says, I don't feel anything anywhere, then they're either completely you know, loose and flexible and therefore don't have a lot of sensation because there's no restriction, mm-hmm. right? Because the sensation, there's different types of sensation, but what we're talking about now, that sensation is, um, is based on there being a restriction. And it doesn't mean a bad restriction. It's not a judgment on yeah, that. It's like a question of what, what do you do with that intensity then? Do you, I mean, and also that, that is a question for you. I mean, having encountered that intensity, and people will also ask you, should I feel that, right? Or is it, is it a good pain or is it a bad, you know what I mean? Like there's an intensity and it's not comfortable, but it's not pain, you know, what is, should I fit? Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I mean, what, what do you do with that? Well, I, I typically do the same thing I do with where do I feel it? It's like, is this good or bad? I'm like, well, what does your intuition tell you? Because I constantly put it back on the person. One, because Small idea. I don't want the responsibility yeah. of, of having their answers for them. Yeah. Because as a teacher, I'm trying to cultivate them owning their practice not them being reliant on me to give them answers for everything in their practice. Uh, that's a dead end to me. And, and also because, you know, I don't run a daily Mysore, you know, I'm, I fly in for a week. I uh, used to anyway, we'll see what happens yeah. now, you know, I'm going to leave. So I need to help people figure out their own answers for it, or at least, be able to give me more information if it's a more serious problem, let's say, yeah. or a, a pain that doesn't feel good to them, then yes, I'm going to interact with that. Once they give me mm-hmm. more information, then it's about postulating a theory, basically. Okay, I think most likely it's going to be X, Y, and Z. And what I've observed in your practice through all of these other postures is this type of pattern, or you tend to do things this way, which normally I wouldn't change, but now you're describing something that bothers you or hurts you or is in pain. And I have to wonder if there's any relationship with all of these other things you're doing along the way. That's a very, very polite way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah, very gentle. He's like, so don't do that. (laughs) <laughs> you're just hurting yourself <laughs> it, it, it very very uh, no but joking aside are yeah. there any ba- I mean and people want to know this are there any basic principles that you can apply anatomically to one's practice you know just very basic rules of thumb in, in, in stretching you know what we you know. yeah um, my sense is people try to gain flexibility too quickly for their body okay that's a, that's a good general thing is it's kind of like if we put numbers or degrees on it, you know, that sensation that we all have felt of, of stretching tissue, 
that's not bad. It doesn't, it's not that it necessarily feels great. Like it's not like a comforting feeling. It's slightly painful, but not in an injurious way. Um, when you hit that edge, I typically tell people to, you know, maybe go five to 10% beyond that and then breathe. And that's it. How do you know if they're stretching tissue or, and muscle or whether they're just overstretching their ligaments and destabilizing their yeah. joint? You, I mean, it depends on the person, but you're, the average person is never getting to the ligaments. A highly flexible person is more likely to be getting down to the ligaments, the ligamentous structures. Muscles are always going to be the first restrictor to movement. Right. That's kind of like the more superficial tissue. So it blocks it first. And then as you get in deeper and the tension, if you will, leaves the tissues and you get deeper and deeper into postures, then you're more likely to be getting into the ligamentous structures. And the problem with that is it ligaments are there to stabilize yeah. bones mm -hmm. and, and allow for or restrict movement at a very deep structural level. So if they're overstretched, it allows more movement, which means it's possible that it destabilizes the relationship between two bones. And then other things can happen as a result of that. But okay, so to be it also doesn't have the same proprioception. So if you feel that sensation of stretch, chances are you're not on ligament, you're on, you're on muscle tissue. So just the indication that you're, it feels like you're stretching something already tells you you're still in just muscle. Right. So what would you feel like differently? I mean, how can, can we make this more practically um, applied? So if someone comes to you and they say, well, you know, I feel this, this stretch, this pain in my shoulder, you know, probably not an unusual kind of, you know, uh, the start of a conversation, right? Like, how do you, just to give someone that, you know, and I feel it on, let's say, I feel it on jumping through and, uh, and then, um, you know, when I reach, overreach my hand up in Suriname Scar, I feel it then. Um, what would you, uh, you know, what can you do about that? What would you say? Well, I, um, I'm a little <laughs> resistant to just saying, oh, if it's X, X, then do Y. Or what are the different um, scenarios? Can you give a few different yeah, scenarios? I mean, yeah, how one, you know, one, how one would modify or do, yeah, yeah. Well, what I would do is, I, and this to me is where the anatomy, you know, becomes very handy is I, and, and, and my work of working with people with chronic pain. So what I might do is just for instance, let's say somebody, their arm hurts when they raise it over their head. So I'll go, okay, um, try rotating your arm externally before you raise it over your head. And I just asked the question, does that make any difference? Yes or no. And right. I'll try doing it with the arm rotated internally, even though you would never do that in practice. But I, I start down this path of trying to get more specific information. Mm -hmm. So I ask a series of, it, it's assessment. Mm. And, and I think that's the most difficult thing for people to do on their own because you don't necessarily have that objective sort of body of knowledge of one, working with lots of people and two, having the anatomy sitting back there, right? And so it's difficult, but I always start with assessment. I don't know, always, sometimes I get an, in, an instinct or an intuition about what it is for them. Maybe I've seen them move already because they don't typically just do that at the beginning of the very first day of class. 
I watch them move and I see things, right? We see everything. Mm. You can't, not, not consciously necessarily, but you see everything. And that, you know, I, I use John's analogy. It's like, okay, everybody's got a file. I open a file on this person, you know, and, and there's notes going in that file that I'm not having to purposely or consciously write. And so I'm seeing the way they move without judgment, just that's the way they move. That's the way they do that. That's the way they do that. Now they ask a question and all of a sudden there's somehow access to all that information. Right. But during the conversation, I test things, then it's more specific. So now I'm going to consciously write things in the file. It feels better or worse when they do X, Y, and Z. It feels yeah. better or worse when we do this. That then takes me to narrow it down. Like, okay, well, if it hurts more when you internally rotate it, and it hurts less when you externally rotate it. Maybe there's something with the internal rotators that are too tight. Just, just making this up. And then I, I start pinpointing it like, okay, where else do those internal rotating muscles say have to contract or work in other areas of practice? And is there a relationship between this one movement that we think is just raising our arm over our head and a way in which that person does all of these other things where those same muscles are engaged? Right. Mm -mm. Does that help yeah, unpack yeah, no, that group, a little? Yeah, absolutely. And is there, a, is, are, is there a better or worse way to move? Or, or is, an, uh, I suppose my question is, is anatomy a, quite a general precedent or is it, or can it be varied? Um, there are, it's both. Right. <laughs> the general, the general, would be, if I really put this in a nutshell, everybody should be acti activating their movements from the deeper, more intrinsic muscles first, and then utilizing the more superficial or extrinsic muscles after, in terms of order of, let's say, muscle contraction or muscle firing. Movement should generate from the inside and from the center of the body first, and then make its way outward. That would be the general thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, yes, more specific, which is going to happen based on somebody's body type, which could be, I mean, and I'll just include there, like, genetically speaking, the shape of their joints, maybe, or activities that they've done, you know, if they've been a runner or a cyclist or play football or whatever it is. Um, and then any injuries that they've had, you know, what I call converging histories, like you have to kind of, those are the places where you then go, okay, generally we're going to go from the inside out, let's say, but this person, because of the patterns they have in their body needs to accentuate doing this specifically at this joint or in their body in a particular way. Mm. So unfortunately, the answer is both. I never give <laughs> clear, clean answers because I know too much. I've seen it too many times. It's like, it's one yoga is extremely complex as a subject, as a practice, as the experience of it. And anatomy is almost equally as vast a subject of knowledge and complexity and complication. And so... When you take those two, put it together, there, sometimes there's obvious answers, but it's not common. So there's a varied anatomy from person to person, a little bit of more variation than, than one might think, right? Okay. I would say 
generally mm. we're we're more similar in our right. basic structure and makeup than not. Yeah. Yeah. But what changes is our personality, activities that we've done, injuries that we, all of that stuff. So that's where you have to then go, okay, well, who is this person? Not because they don't have a body like everybody else. They do. Everybody with their 206 bones. There are exceptions. Mm -hmm. Some -hmm. people have an extra lumbar vertebrae. Some people, you know, missing a rib or, you know, these things happen, but by and large, not really. So if I was to ask you how your journey with anatomy has merged into your yoga practice, and how how it's affected it? Can you can you suggest that it has, or are they two separate worlds? Um, it, it's definitely affected it. Um, I think. I think it, I you know if anything you know the anatomical knowledge kind of adds color to my mm. felt sense experience. Mm, mm. You know, it's like. I don't have to identify, oh, that sensation in my hamstrings. But at the same time, you know, if, my ham- if I feel sensation in my hamstrings, it feels almost like the acknowledgement of that sensation is, um, is richer. It's a little bit more, not that, it, it, not that I have a visualization of it necessarily, but Mm. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure how to put it into words, yeah. but there's, a, there's, there's more color to it. That's it. And can you say, well, you know, the reason I can't do this is because I've got a tight this, or is it more interconnected than that? You know, people say that, oh, it's often I get, I'm sure you get, oh, it's because I've got tight rhomboids or, you know, because my psoas is too tight, or is it a lot more nuanced? You know, can we say that? Can we isolate a muscle that much? Sometimes, yes. Right. Okay. Some, sometimes, yes, it can be that. Yeah. Um, what I often find, however, is I, you know, I'll listen to anybody's story, but I won't necessarily believe it until I test their their story about what they think it is. Yeah. But yes, it, it, it sometimes it can come down to a, you know, whether it's a single muscle, uh, you know, is a stretch because no muscle works alone anyway. So it's always going to be more than one. We would have a horrible time with our bodies if we had a single muscle to do a single thing and it worked by itself all the time. We'd, we'd, we wouldn't, it, it's unrealistic. But this is one of the general oversimplifications that of course happens to anatomy, which is fine. It keeps everybody's mind happy and I kind of know what I'm talking about and all of that stuff. Um, which is always the work of my workshops, which is to kind of go, okay, yes, that's all true. That's true, our basic understanding, but you go a layer deeper and you realize it's also not just that. It's that with this layer underneath it. So it's always, yes, that muscle. And either way, when somebody, if somebody says it like, I don't know, you said rhomboid, so I'll just go, oh yeah, my rhomboids is tight, whatever. When I hear that, I think, okay, what does rhomboids represent? Right. You know, is it, mm-hmm. it could be the broader back area in my mind, because I know anatomy, I go, okay, so it's either rhomboids, trapezius in the middle section of it, or X, Y, and Z. And then I had ask another question and I go, Mm-mm-mm-mm. you know, I start kind of making my, what I like to think of as deductively valid, you know, logical kind of way to a closer, to getting closer to what it may be. 
So it's a good jumping off point when somebody says that. Don't assume that's the whole thing, though. Yeah, yeah. And is there an energy behind the anatomy that's kind of intangible, like that, you know, you kind of see things and you think, well, I mean, this is my experience and it's been said of me as well. It's like, we, that's really tight, you know, you shouldn't be able to do that or that, you know, people say that, <laughs> not that it's a good thing, that should hurt you, you know, <laughs> that, that does, you know, they're, they're kind of like more, you know, classically minded on the anatomy front. Well, that movement, you know, but, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, or, or is it, you know, is it just simply as, as mechanical as all that? Or is there an energy lying behind the anatomy that kind of confuses you? Have your views of anatomy melded over time mm. from being an obvious textbook study? Do you know what I mean? This is what I would kind of imagine. So again, I'm kind of inserting something here that might sure. not be true, right? Sure. I, I mean, I think... I, I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about and I've mm -hmm. seen it before as well. And what I typically find is it's a simplistic view of anatomy, like saying something should hurt you. Doesn't even matter what I think it does or it doesn't, you know, if the person doing it doesn't feel the sensation, then okay. And then here's the other thing is, you know, oh, that muscle's tight. You shouldn't be able to do that. But just using the word tight to describe a muscle is so limiting. Does, does that tight mean strong? Does that tight mean tight and flexible? Like, how is it that you came to that word tight? Because you can see the muscle and it's outlined because the person has, you know, uh, low body fat or something mm -hmm. and therefore it looks tight. Like how it looks really is pointless in, in, in a certain sense. You know, there's, and certainly you can look at people and go, wow, I can't believe, wow, they can pull it off that way. But then I, when, if, if that thought occurs to me when I'm watching a student practice, I go, okay, well, that's how their body works. Because I mean, a good idea that's come to mind recently, sorry to, to cut you off there, um, okay. was Mark Roberts did this video. And, you know, the classical thing with Kapatasana, you know, you're never meant to wing the elbows out, right, and get it round like that, you know. So you want to kind of go back like this, you know, I'm sorry, I'm demonstrating with the elbows together here, um, <laughs> rather than spin the shoulder and take it, you know. And he mentions in his post, this was always frowned upon, but um, then he kind of gives arguments why that's actually not a bad idea. Um, you know, in some things, we, we can follow this example. Yeah. Only time will tell. Right. You know, the great yoga experiment, uh, you know, the modern yoga movement of the last, I mean, sure, people, you know, went to Patabi Joyce, say, 40 years ago now, 35, 40 years ago, but the majority of people have been practicing, we're starting to get like a really big cohort at around the 20, 25, 30 year mark. And what will happen to them when they're in their 60s based on how they practice? And the truth is, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, and it could be, you know, for 80% of people, if you grab like this and then you swing your elbow in, it's not a problem. But if you're in the 30%, where it is a problem, then you're going to be upset with the 60 who said it was fine. You know, and it's, you know, I, I would never say, oh, that doing it that way is right or wrong. Anything else I say, I go, I can imagine, I can imagine how, yeah, if you 
load that shoulder under tension and then swing it around, mm-hmm. you can make an argument for, you know, compression or ligamentous stuff or you whatever, but yeah. I don't know it to be true. You wouldn't want to warn someone off it though and go, well, you might, you know, like you might watch that because that could be, you know, potentially dramatically harmful for you. You know, you and the thing is, the, the thing is, you don't know, do you? You don't know the, the ins and outs. You don't know for sure what's going to happen to each person. But my feeling maybe as a teacher sometimes is to say, well, you know, let's just be a bit cautious on that because we don't know what the, the effect of that's going to be in 10 years. Maybe try it, you know, at a certain point, you know, as much as, I really like the tone that you come to it with. You don't want to give categorical instructions. At some point, perhaps you, you find yourself needing to be categorical. I, I get more categorical when somebody is actually exhibiting a problem from X, Y, or Z. Then I, I get more categorical. Right. But prior to that, I don't assume that my experience and my knowledge know, can tell the future. Right. So, yes, of course, we there are there there are certainly places where you could argue. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, like grabbing ankles for me is one of those. I, I have a. If somebody's hypermobile, if they're, you know, typically, typically women, but not always, but typically women, they're on the hypermobile side already. Grabbing ankles to me is is probably within their normal range of motion. Right. It's not a stretch. I don't bring anybody's hands up above their knees or to their knees. Not anymore. I mean, there were times. Okay. Oh, really? but, yeah, but I don't do that anymore. And I don't encourage people to grab their ankles because that is one of those places where I do go off into the future and I do make up a story about I'm not sure how that is going to play out in 55 years. And it's based on, I, I've met when I taught in China a bunch, I, I met a couple of people who were like, you know, they were in the Chinese circus, you know, like super bendy. I, I mean, they were in their mid forties. They were doing that since they were little kids, you know, in their mid forties and their bodies were what I would call a complete mess. Everything hurt all the time huh. from destabilization. Right. Right. From overstretching ligamentous structures at some point. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, some, your spine and your back, you know, that's kind of critical to everything. Mm. And so that is, that's, that's an example of me going a little bit more, there's some looseness to it, but I'm a little bit more categorical. I don't know what the benefit of that is. I know people swear it feels good. I just, you know, I, I, I've met those people grabbing, you know, hands above knees, looking like they're in a forward bend going backwards, swearing it feels good at the time. I don't, I don't, I don't think they're lying. I just don't know where they're going to be in 40 years. So to end up on a, you know, a, 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 a crescendo question, which you kind of um, set up for me to say is like, so what is the benefit of, of that, uh, that grabbing ankles in my soul? I mean, it's, you know, you've been there, it's stressed, you know, that's a thing that you do. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you reckon? What, why, what was the, uh, the importance of that? You know, I, I, I don't know the actual answer, um, but you know, to make up an answer for myself, that's my opinion is, you know, it, it, um, 
I think it ties back into a certain amount of effort, discipline, quality that may be helpful for some period of time to keep you in the practice. That's, that's good. That's good. I mean, I was, I'm glad that someone didn't ask me that. So I mean, you, I, that's <laughs> I, yeah, it's, yeah. Anatomically, it's hard. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with deep backbending per se. Um, but there, there does come a point where there's a lot of stress that gets in inputted into the system while doing these things. And I don't think it, it's, I don't think it's really meant to be that stressful. Wherever you hit that point of making people scared and putting that kind of, you know, I'll call it negative for maybe lack of a better word, that negative input into the system. I'm not sure that's what yoga's aim is in a very big picture way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about taking the nervous system the other way, actually. Now, there could be a, by stimulating the nervous system to a degree, there may be a coming back to neutral that is um, a happier neutral. Yeah. So there, there is that aspect of it. Um, but whether or not you have to grab your ankle and that's by itself of benefit, I don't, I'm not aware of what it is physically or anatomically. The process, it maybe is more valuable, right? Yeah. Right. Very nice. Very well first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. We've run out of time, um, but been a wonderful guest and I really appreciate um, the time we've spent again. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again, Adam.